0: One of the things I really like to watch on television are the DIY shows, Do It Yourself. They get guys in there, and uh, they build all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, they, they they take a backyard that looks like a junkyard, and within a short week or whatever, they turn it into the Babylon Gardens. The, it's ab- absolutely spectacular. Um, they've got, you know, shows that teach you to take a room uh, like a bedroom or some other room and create a more usable space. I mean, they just show you these really cool things that you can do to make more space in your place. Or they, they show you how to take a bathroom or a kitchen and to renovate the whole thing so that it gives your house a a, suit or a certain appeal that it really looks great. All these shows create a sense of empowerment to us what I would call uh, the, the average person. It, it, they're telling us that there's no project that we, the average homeowner, can't accomplish on our own. It's kind of like a motivational pep talk that says, you don't have to be a professional to make your home better. All you need is a little incentive and, and someone to show you how to do it, and then you can do it yourself. It's a great concept, putting a little sweat equity into your home, taking charge of the project, giving yourself a sense of accomplishment. What a marvelous idea. All right. One of the problems is that we're all just, you know, the people that aren't professionals that are watching this thing, we're watching these people go after it and do the thing, and what we're watching are professional people do what they do every day. And they just make it look so easy. It's just simple. This is all you have to do. And all you have to do is gather this list of materials, and they usually give you a list of materials that you can gather up, and then you need to either buy or rent some equipment, and then when you get all your materials and your equipment put together, then all it takes is a short period of time, and you can have a a facelift on your home. There's one thing that they can't supply. That's skill. You can have everything in the world, but if you have no skill, it's going to turn out ugly. Um, there's, there's one thing that else that we have going on is, is that we are watching them We have the expectation that what we do is going to go as smoothly as what they showed us on television. There's a couple of problems with the DIY projects. First of all, from my experience, nothing seems to go as smoothly as it is presented. The DIYers run into all kinds of problems that were never addressed in the show. The second part is the host of the show makes it sound like you can pick up all the materials down at your local y- lumber yard. So just trot down there to your lumber yard and pick up your supplies. But guess what? They don't live in Lander, Wyoming. And so when they say, you can pick it up at Lowe's or Home Depot, well, hello, it's two and a half hours one way. And if you don't have your list right, you walk out of that lumber yard without all the material, you're in deep water. You're in big trouble. And And... The third thing is is that when you are renting and running equipment that you don't own, it can be more costly than just renting it. If you rent, let's say, a mini excavator, and you've never operated one before, you can destroy your home. That simple little DIY project becomes a major home renovation. And that's a bad deal all the way around. So here's what takes place. a person gets into the project. They run into some unexpected problems. The project goes from maybe a 45-minute project to a four- or five-week project. Discouragement sets in. The project stalls. And what was started is never completed. It isn't as easy as it looks, and there are a lot of homeowners who have started projects but leave them unfinished. They're incomplete And what that does is it creates a little tension at home because the wife wants it done. She wants her house back to normal. But instead, she's now living in a constant construction zone and nobody's happy. We live in a world where you can do it yourself or as the other guy says, get her done, right? Here's, here's, let me, as I've told you a bunch of times, that what happens in our physical world also help, happens in our spiritual world and in our spiritual lives. So we have the same issue when it comes to growing our faith. There are a lot of people who will give you all kinds of advice on how you can grow your faith yourself. It's the DIY approach to faith. And I'm not suggesting that you need to get the professionals to help you grow your faith because that's not what it takes. It doesn't take a professional. I'm a professional because I can't really do anything else. I don't have any skill, so I did what I could, you know. I took a job as a pastor because it seemed easy. Wrong. But I'm not saying that you need to get a professional, lay a pastor involved in your life to grow your faith. What you have to do is you have to get the God of creation involved in your life in order to grow your faith. That, that's what he's told us all along is that, that we need God to help us grow our faith. We can't do it ourselves. But he's also said that we need each other to help us grow our faith. That's what this whole series that John's talking about starting on Monday is that it's helping men helping men to be godly men. We also need to understand God's word so that when we're not looking for the extra stuff out there that we think is going to help enhance our spirituality and make us super spiritual with a formula that takes us to a higher level of spiritual understanding and ultimately closer to God than others have ever been. All that does is breed spiritual pride. And that's nothing more than DIY faith or man-made religion which is sure to fail because all it does is leave you empty. There's nothing to it. In Paul's letter that we've been looking at in Colossians, he's addressing this very issue to the church, where a group of people have come into the church who were promoting the idea that with a few extra activities and a few other things, you can create a more spiritual way to God and fully and extensively that went beyond anything of Jesus. And the first two areas we're going to look at this morning are the areas regarding to special diets and holy days, and that's 2 Colossians 2, 16 through 17. You can follow along on the screen or open up your Bibles and underline and write some notes there. That'd be awesome. Let me read it. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul's saying is, there are people that are sneak into the church, and what they what they're saying to us is that in order to really know God, you need to eat only certain foods. He's addressing actually the Jewish uh, people who the Jews who have slipped in and started to talk about regulations and and um, laws from the Old Testament. And it wasn't just a mere suggestion that this is just going to help you out in your life. What they're saying is they're putting a lot of pressure on people to conform, to go back to the Old Covenant and conform to the law of dietary restrictions. The Old Testament dietary law was given primarily for two purposes. The first was for physical reasons because in in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews weren't aware of some of the hazards of certain foods. And there, there would have to be a very strict way in which to prepare those foods. And quite frankly, God's going like, you don't have what it takes to prepare this food to keep yourself from getting really, really sick or actually even killing you. So here's a list of foods. Just don't eat them. Save yourself a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. Save your family from having to do a, a funeral. Don't eat these foods. The second purpose was for spiritual reasons. It was to give, us, give them a distinction between clean food and unclean food or pure and unpure. And it was to stimulate the conscious every day so that as they walked along and they saw something like, let me just give you an example, one of my favorite foods, pig. Uh, God says, don't eat that critter. That's bad. And So when they'd see a pig, they'd go, oh, that's unclean. And then when they would see a Uh, a sheep or a cow they go that's clean I can eat that and and what God was doing was giving them a visual picture of what he wanted to have happen in their hearts and so he's saying like stay away from these things because they're going to pollute you but also on the same sense he's saying stay away from from this kind of activity worshiping idols and other things because that is going to pollute your heart and I want a pure heart and clean hands That's what God was calling them to. And so those dietary restrictions that were there were simply because God's saying, I want you to understand the difference between purity and impurity. I want you to understand that what I'm looking for is a pure heart, undefiled, set on loving and obeying me, and that is actually the visual picture that you get through the food. Here is where the great news comes for us and for the, the Colossians church. When Jesus came... All the dietary laws of the Old Testament were abolished. Jesus taught that the only way for a person to have a pure heart is by the radical work of God, and Jesus was God, and he would do the radical work in our hearts to radically remove the sinful nature that we had. Therefore, the food didn't bring the symbolism along anymore because the reality of Christ came. And that's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. He's, and Jesus said to them, when, then, are, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters in not his heart but his stomach, and it is expelled? He declared all food clean." Paul also made the same conclusion in 1 Corinthians 8. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. In other words, it doesn't matter if you eat unleavened bread or not. That's going to not make you closer to God. It doesn't matter if you you prefer Pig over sheep, that's not what's going to make you closer to God. What you take into your body physically is not what brings you closer to God. But I do have to say this. I don't want you to get the the wrong idea here. There's a lot of common sense that God says that we need to incorporate into our lives. So a steady diet of Twinkies and donuts is really not going to be that beneficial for you. All right? So God's saying, like, you know, it, it really tastes good. But it's not that good for you. I can remember when my dad, um, he had a stroke when he was about my age. And he lived almost 30 years with the effects of a major stroke. And he'd put on a little bit of weight, and his blood pressure had gone up. So he went to see his doctor. And the doctor says, well, I've got to give you a new diet for this. And my dad says, okay. Um, He goes, are you going to print it out for me? Do I need to write it down? He goes, no, it's really simple, George. If it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> you know, and, and listen, fellas, I, I, men, I really want to say this to you. Just because you hear that, that no one should condemn us um, on what we eat or drink, the food we eat or whatever we drink, that doesn't mean that that gives you license to say to your wife, I don't have to eat vegetables or salad. You know, don't judge me for not eating that stuff. Listen, she has your best interest in mind as well. She wants you to be around for a little while. So eat a little kale. It's good roughage for you. It it may not taste that great, but it will make your insides happy, okay? Guys, so don't use this as license to say to your wife, I can eat you know, steak and potatoes and, and ice cream. Although those are really good. Paul's point here is is that dietary discipline is not a sign of being spiritual. And he says we're not to judge others or allow anyone to pass uh, religious judgment on us in regards to what we eat or what we drink. And there's a lot of that going on. You, you You can sit around and you can go like, you know, because, listen, and I'm not trying to pick on you if you are. Is, is, are there any vegans here? I thought they all lived in Colorado. You know, but, but I, don't, I don't pass judgment on someone who doesn't eat meat. I mean, they've got a conviction about that, and, hey, that's fine. But on the same hand, they should not pass judgment on people who really enjoy a good, healthy steak. There's just this thing where we get caught up in passing judgment and making people feel bad over silly things like food and what we're drinking. It's it's ridiculous. But we can't get on the other side of the coin either, which says, now I have freedom in Christ, and so I can do whatever I want. Well, Paul addressed that issue when he wrote to the the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. You know, you can eat and drink anything, but it's not always beneficial. The Bible addresses two huge issues in our society, gluttony and drunkards, being drunk. The Bible, gluttony, the problem with gluttony is, is that when, when a person becomes a glutton, the only thing that they think about is the food that they're going to eat and filling their belly. That's all they think about. Gluttony is just, is what's my next meal, my next snack? What am I going to drink? What am I going to have? And gluttony takes our focus off of God and puts it on ourselves. That's why God says, don't be a glutton. Because it takes your focus away from who God is. The other thing it says is not to... The Bible doesn't tell us not to drink alcohol. What the Bible tells us is not to get drunk. And there's a huge difference in regards to that. You know, you have to show some self-control. That's the problem with drunkenness. is that when you get drunk, you no longer have control of yourself. Something else has control of you, and it's not the spirit of God. It's a different spirit. And, and, you know, people do stupid, stupid things when they're drunk. Phil was just telling me about his sons who had had maybe just a little bit too much. and They got in a fist fight. I mean, you just look around. Nobody ever gets, you know, in a car wreck from eating too many McDonald's hamburgers. But if you drink... Beyond what you're supposed to, you can end up in a lot of trouble. And so we're to stay away from from getting into that place um, with some of the foods we have. That's called common sense. We're to make sure that we're doing what we are doing doesn't also become a stumbling block to other people because there are other people who, particularly on the whole issue of alcohol, are recovering alcoholics. And so God's called us to be wise with our fellow brothers and Christians and other people around us because we don't want to become the stumbling block for them. It never hurts us to abstain from something for a short period of time for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We, have, we should love them enough to do it. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't, don't let anybody come and pass judgment on you for what you're eating and drinking, but also use common sense so that you don't become the stumbling block for them for somebody else and cause them to sin. There are also the same implication on special days, back to Second or Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, those are the things that are also coming out of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God, God, by the way, just in case you didn't know, God is a party God. I'm just telling you. You want to see how much God parties, go back and start reading in the Old Testament because all of a sudden there's the harvest festival where we get together and we celebrate the goodness of God and we have this huge party. Then you have the celebration at a wedding, by the way, which will last you know, up to a week-long celebration. God's going like, yeah, let's party the nuptials of this, this young couple. God puts out this, this festival of the new moon. And he has all these different festivals, but there was also some regulations that came along with that. And then you have this whole thing on the Sabbath, and and what what had t- takes place is there are people who come along and and they try to encompass their idea of some of these festivals or holy days or the Sabbath, and they try to tell. The rest of us, that you have, if you're really going to love God, if you're going to obey God, then you have got to keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Yesterday was the Sabbath. All right. What we do here today, we're celebrating the goodness of God through Jesus Christ on the first day of the week, which represents the day that he was raised from the dead. That's why we come together. We're going, woohoo, let's party because Jesus is raised from the dead and we have new life. But in the whole Sabbath thing, what it happens is, is that this, there's this shadow of the reality because that Sabbath thing was dealt with by Jesus. Jesus is the one that gave us a new reason to worship. Jesus often according to the religious leaders of the day, was a a rule-breaker in regards to the Sabbath. Because he would heal people on the Sabbath, and his disciples would often, as they're walking along, take grain from the fields and eat grain or do some other kind of activity on the Sabbath that they were told not to do. And Jesus is going like, you guys have lost your minds. You guys really don't understand what the Sabbath is all about. So... Here's what Jesus said to them in Mark chapter 2. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, why did God institute this, what we call the Sabbath day? And actually, um, if you understand the Hebrew mind, their day doesn't begin at sun, sunrise. Their day begins at sunset when the sun goes down. If you go back to Genesis and you read Genesis, it was night and it was day. It was the first day. And God said it was good. You go back and you read that, you see that night comes first, day comes second. And so in, in a Jew's mind, the day begins at sunset. And that's why the Sabbath was from sunset On Friday to sunset on Saturday. That was their Sabbath. They did no work. They rested. They worshiped God. That was the whole purpose behind it. God understood the human heart. He understood that we are so driven to have more stuff that we would never take a Sabbath rest from our regular work. It's not the day that's important. It's the idea and the concept behind the day that's important. So for me... When I take my Sabbath rest, it's not today, because guess what? I've been working since 5.30 this morning. I don't, it's not restful for me. And, and, and so I'll, I'll finish my, my work day off here probably in about two hours and 40 minutes when I'm done preaching. <laughs> All the new people are going like, I didn't know it was that long. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's the Sabbath principle that God wants us to get into our heart because he understands that we need rest. And if God didn't say you need to take a day and have rest, we wouldn't rest. And we would burn ourselves out, and we would burn our families up, and we'd make a mess of everything. So what is the Sabbath principle? The Sabbath printh- principle is simply that we set aside a time to do something different than our normal work day. So on my Sabbath rest, I do a bunch of different things. That's that I don't I don't come and work in my office here at the church on Mondays. If you phone me on Monday, I'm going to ignore you. I love you. But you are my work. But I'm going to ignore you. I'll get back to you on Tuesday. So my Sabbath looks like uh, I might do a little fishing, I might do a little project around the home because. I spend a lot of time reading and doing all that stuff, and so when I'm doing something mindless like painting a room, man, I can just like do that all day long and not think about anything. So it's stepping out of my regular routine and doing something totally different where I get to rest my, for me, it's rest my mind. Some of you who are are doing construction and that kind of work, you need to rest your body. There's a second part to all of this Sabbath rest, the, the principle behind Sabbath rest is that in our rest, we're supposed to be still. Be still before God. Because it's in that stillness that we get to worship, we get to reflect on the beauty of God, we get to hear the voice of God, we get to hear what God wants from us and how He loves us. And so we, we enter into that re- Sabbath, Sabbath rest to rest ourselves and to... Spend time in worship of God, whatever that looks like. The other practical thing behind that is, is if you work six days and you take a break on the seventh, I'm going to tell you there's this this crazy thing that God does. He will make you more productive in six days and you can be in seven. You work seven days a week all the time. You You think you're really productive and you're really doing a lot, but I... I I just want to challenge you. Implement a month of taking a Sabbath day and then watch how much more you're able to accomplish by taking one day off. So Jesus is is doing all that stuff and he's he's saying to these people, don't let, and Paul's saying to these people, don't let people tell you that you have to to do this stuff because it, it, it just kind of, makes things weird, when we move to making food or drink spiritual or unspiritual, when we make a specific day more holy than any other day, and we insist that others observe our day as holy and participate in some special celebration for it, we've... We, we tell people that they need to abstain from various foods and drink, then we've crossed a line that God said we should never cross. Because the idea that spirituality can be quantified provides an unfortunate basis for pride and judgmentalism. Our flesh finds doing truly spiritual things difficult, like sitting down and studying God's Word and understanding what it means to our lives, and then applying it by taking time out of our day to set aside some time to where we're going to talk with our Heavenly Father. We find those things really difficult to do. It is hard to do. I'm telling you, one of the hardest things you will ever do is to have a, a, a lengthy time of prayer where you are talking to God. Because typically what happens is you you really you might even make a list that you're going to pray through a list, and then as you're starting to pray through the list, all of a sudden you're going like, I wonder what I'm having for dinner tonight. Oh, and then you get back to praying on your list, and you're going like, hey, I wonder if the, the water's open on the river and I could go fish. Oh well. And, it, and and your mind just gets distracted very easily because we have not trained our minds in discipline to praying for God to God. But on the other hand, if, if, it's, if, if it's the whole idea of doing something else, we find that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, doing those things. Our flesh, though, has no trouble with religious rules and regulations. We have no problem saying, oh, well, they didn't do this, and they didn't do this, and they didn't do, oh, but they did do this, and they did do, and and we, we love to make our little rules and regulations that we want everybody else to conform to. You know what that's called? That's called legalism. Legalism. That that has nothing to do with what Christ brought to us. Because legalism spawns judgmentalism. And judgmentalism is miserable for the judged and those judging. Because it shrivels our souls. There's only one judge. And his name is Jesus. Legalism is instinctively joyless and demands uniformity in which people are expected to say the same kind of thing or talk a certain way and language, to wear the same kind of clothes, to stay away from bad places, and and that our worship should be the same style. Legalism produces a, a, a surface faith because it adheres to the emphasizing of things that are not really important. They're a man-made list of do's and don'ts, and they ignore the really important things that God talks to us about not doing, such as gossiping, slander, bitterness, and hatred. We let those things creep right into our lives, but we're going to keep a list. Legalism limits one to the shallow self-righteousness which actually brings condemnation to the, to the person who is living in legalism. That's what a DIY faith does. It brings no freedom or joy. It doesn't lead to life but to death. And the irony is, is that legalism is made out to be the true path to really participating with God at a deeper level. But it never brings us closer to Him. It becomes an anchor to our soul. Let's press on, verses 18 and 19. It says, "No one, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Here is, is what Paul's talking about is there are people who are going to come in. We first have to deal with the whole area of legalism that wants to creep its way into the family of God, into the church. Then you also have on the other side, you have mysticism that wants to creep into the church and make everything mystical. Now, believe me, There is something mysterious about our relationship with God. But Paul already defined that for us and showed us what it is. And he says, here's the mystery. The mystery is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery has been revealed. It's no longer mysterious to us because we recognize the whole fact that the mystery is that God brought his son to earth, he died on the cross, he was buried, he was raised to the third day. And then when he ascended into heaven, God sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts and the lives of every person who would put their faith in Christ. That was the mystery that nobody knew long ago. And we the recipients of it. But there's, there's this other idea of this mysticism that wants to creep into the church. And, and, and what they do by letting this mysticism creep in is that they're insisting that it's asceticism. Let me explain asceticism to you. It's a strict, self-denying way of life. It goes beyond just abstinence. It goes on to going deeper into to denying yourself good things that God has given to you to try to show that you are somehow more spiritual than other people. And what it, all it is is just kind of, it's a bragging right. Look how much I'm suffering for the kingdom of God. Look what I'm denying myself for Jesus. And all it is is false humility, bogus hum- humility. These disqualifiers also talk about their path to God through angels and visions that they have had to God and what they're saying is until you've, you've had this, this interaction with angels that I've had and until you've had these visions that God's given to me and, and lifted me up to seventh heaven and I've experienced this new reality of God, until you've had that, you are just a lesser of a spiritual person and you really don't know God one iota. You have no clue what it can be like to really be ascended into the presence of God through through this worship of angels and through these visions and dreams that God has given to me. And it, it's supposed to be all this, this great thing. But as you listen to what they say, there becomes this inconsistency in their story. There, there's this unbelievable um, thing that they're telling you. And, and it's, a lot of people are going like, well, that just sounds like kind of hokey-finokey but yet there are so many people out there that are striving to have this mystical experience that they'll believe anything. There's an old saying that's really true. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. These claims that they make are very enticing, especially to those who desperately want to be on the inner circle to be in the place where they're having this sensationalism living through their lives. They're living for the experience. But yet Paul says we're not to seek sensationalism or the experience because it's all a deception. There's no truth in it. The root of the problem is that those who are propagating this mystery, this mysticism, are disconnected from the head of Christ. And when they're disconnected from the head, from Jesus, they have lost their connection. They are no longer a part of the true body of Jesus. They've, they've set themselves off. They've alienated themselves. So here's how you know when a mystical experience is deceptive. If it is not focused on Jesus, Jesus. if it does not have Christ at the center, if it's not based on biblical precepts and concepts, it, it, it is derived from the pretenses and imagination Of spiritual shysters. I don't know how else to say it. They're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you, period. Because you have been certified, endorsed by Jesus. He's the only one who who can establish us with God. Or, he's the only one that can disqualify us as well. When I was in college, I played on the college basketball team. Now, that sounds really impressive, except for the fact that it was a really small college. And there were some good athletes there. We had a guy on our, on our um, college basketball team that had won a tryout with the uh, Chicago Cubs. But God got a hold of his heart and says, I don't want you to play baseball. I want you to go and share Jesus overseas. So he was a part of that. And there were some really good athletes, but it it was Canadian, you know, and they're not all Canadians, a lot of Americans up there as well. But it was just a small college, so you don't have a big pool to choose from. So anyway, that explains how I made the team. But I still sat on the bench, okay? But there was another guy when I was uh, in my last year of college, his name was Danny. And Danny came from Chicago, and Danny was really a, a good athlete, a good basketball player. Uh, He was quick. He had a quick release on his jump shot. He had pretty good ups. He could dribble anywhere. He had a good hand-eye coordination, could steal the ball. I mean, he was a really good basketball player. So I got to know Danny because we were teammates. We weren't pizza buddies, but we were friends. You fast-forward that probably about five or six years, and he's a youth pastor in Montana. I'm a youth pastor up in British Columbia. And we would we would do this thing with our youth groups all across um, the the northwest United States and from Ontario, Canada, to British Columbia. I'm talking about a bunch of America. Do you know where that is in Canada? All right, it's 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 just above Detroit, out to just above Seattle. Okay, so all the Alliance churches in that sphere of of Canada, the Alliance churches, would bring their youth to the. Where I graduated from and have this thing called Youth Conference. And so from all across Canada and some, some places in the United States, you'd have 1,500 students show up where they were going to get some really great spiritual teaching. It was a great weekend. It was always the highlight of the year for these kids. Well, Danny brought a group of kids up from Montana. And I brought my kids, and what you would do is you'd take them to the college, and you'd drop them off because the college would take care of your kids the whole weekend. And then you'd check into a hotel and sleep the whole weekend. <laughs> and that's the truth. And so as I dropped my kids off and got them all situated and settled and took care of all their little needs, um, I was walking up the hallway, and there I saw Danny and a bunch of my other colleagues that were youth pastors that I went to school with, they were younger than I was, and they looked at me, and here's exactly what they said. They go, Grandpa Simon, come and join us, because you see, I was the oldest youth pastor in the Canadian Alliance at that time, and so they all called me Grandpa, and so I went and sat down. I go, hey, what are we talking about? And so Danny was, was had all these young youth pap- pastors captivated. He was telling them about this new experience that was going on in his church, and it was a fairly good-sized church, over a 1,000 people, and that, that God was doing a new work, a new movement in his church. And so he started to explain some of this stuff, and I'm going to be honest with you, a, a lot of the stuff that he said to me, I was just going like, really? You, you, th- you, this is it? But I kept my mouth shut because I was trying to, you know, show a little self-restraint. And then it came to the point... When he said, you guys really don't know what it's like to really know God. You've really not experienced God. What you need to do is you need to come to my church and we'll get the elders and they'll, they'll touch you on your forehead and then you'll fall over backwards and then God will kind of like paralyze you for up to two hours. You'll just lay there and you might start giggling and laughing or you might even bark like a dog. But that's what's going to happen. And, and if you haven't experienced, you haven't experienced God. And I'm going like, hold the phone. That's not right. He looks at me and goes, what do you mean? I said, so you're saying the only way you can have real experience with God is by coming and having someone pound me on the head and I fall over backwards. Yeah, we have guys there to catch you. And then you lay down. But I can only do that in your church. I can't have an experience with God in my home. Well, I suppose you could. I go, well, that doesn't make sense to me because if I fell over backwards in my house, there's a good chance I'm going to hit the back of my head on the table and I'm going to die. And I really don't think that's what God had in mind. He goes, well, you're just a naysayer and you don't know anything about this. I go, I know a lot about this because I've read the Bible. Matter of fact, when the Spirit of God comes upon people in the, in the Bible... They don't fall over backwards, they fall on their faces before God because they recognize he's a holy and awesome God to be feared. And he go and I said, the thing about God is every time I read in his word, when he calls people to, to this, this place where he's talking to them, and it, it's something he's doing specifically in an experience for them, He's practical about it. He says, lay down on your face because you're in the presence of the holy God. He go, and Danny looks at me and goes, you're telling me that God's practical? I said, you got that right, Sonny. And he goes, oh, so was it practical that, that the Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry ground? I said, that was obedience because they couldn't go across until they did what God absolutely told them to do. Oh, I suppose that the walls of Jericho were practical. Again, God said, do this, and this is what's going to happen. That's called obedience. Let me tell you something about, about Moses, Danny. I said, when Moses was in the wilderness wandering around before he led the people of Israel, there's this burning bush right in front of him. He's going like, look at that thing. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. There's no smoke. And so he walks up to take a closer look, and God says, take your sandals off, because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And so Moses did, and he had this interaction with God. It was an amazing experience that he had. But you know what? When he put his sandals on, he went and did what God told him to do. He didn't start walking around the desert looking for another burning bush experience. You never find Moses anywhere looking for yet another burning bush experience because he understood that it wasn't the experience that was important. It's what came out of it, and it was God's command. You never see Peter trying to step out of the boat to walk on water again. It was a one-time experience. And Peter understood that the experience was based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he wasn't seeking the experience. He was seeking the experience giver. And that's what people are trying to take us away from is they're trying to help us to think that this experience is far more important than God. It's the mysticism behind it. They want to make it look all kind of goofy and and like you really can't know and you have to weave your way through this up to seventh heaven. But the bottom line is, if it's not about Jesus, then it's not from God. Verses 20 through 23 says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There is this spirit of asceticism, and that means that you probably have seen it on TV where you see people who are on some kind of a a holy pilgrimage, and they've got whips, and they're whipping their backs to put their flesh under the control of who they are. They'll, They'll starve themselves from food to control the flesh. They do all these crazy, jumbled up nut job things trying to con- control the flesh because their theory is if I can control my flesh, then I will be able to control my spirit. And it's so messed up. It, it is so far out there. It's a seduction of this false teaching, but it has an appeal to people, as it is an expression of independence from God, which says, I'm going to get to God on my own terms. And it feeds the fleshly desires by starving it. It is really a self-made religion. It's the, the antithesis of the DIY faith, because what we're trying to do is create our own avenue to God through our own works and our own suffering and everything that we have going on. We're trying to, to manipulate our way to God by by putting the flesh under this burden, hoping to control the spirit. And the Bible says that the flesh one day is going to pass away. There are only two things that are going to last through eternity, the souls of men and the word of God. And and when you try to, to put your soul under your constant barrage to keep it from doing The ugly thing, Paul points out that it has no value of stopping the indulgence of of the flesh. The only submission that we have of our spirit is to the spirit of God. And it's by immersing yourself into the word of God that will bring anything that is lasting. Far too often what happens with this asceticism is that people are looking for behavioral modification. And, And it is through legalism and asceticism and mysticism. But all that is just short-lived. It never has any lasting effect. Whereas God, when he works, he brings spiritual transformation that is powerful and effective for the training in righteousness and holy living. The reality is this. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And, and in him, we have been made full and complete. We lack nothing. But here's the problem we can lose the benefits of that fullness very easily. We can fall to the legalism and its associates of self righteousness, joy, joylessness, and judgmentalism. We can succumb to mysticism and develop a proud elite spirit which contributes nothing to true worship. We can get into the asceticism, thinking it will make us more holy when actually all it does is feed our flesh. And so the answers to legalism is the continual realization of the grace of Christ. The answer to mysticism is the understanding of how profoundly we are related to Christ. And the answer to asceticism is the reckoning that we have already died, been buried and resurrected with Christ, Therefore, we already have victory over that flesh. The answer is where it all began for us, at the foot of the cross. In my life, and I'm pretty sure you're pretty much like me, we have a tendency to move away from where our beginning was at the cross. We get sucked in to mysticism or legalism or asceticism on some kind of a level. But here's what I want you to help you understand. Is that the the theology that we bring to this group, the church, all of our preaching, all of our singing praises together, the disciplines of life experienced in family and relationships are meant to keep us right at the foot of the cross you have a responsibility with each other to remind one another, hey, dude, it's not in that guy. It's not in that uh, philosophy. It's not in starving yourself. It's not in any of this stuff. It's all right here at the foot of Jesus where we find our grace for every day. And that's where he's calling all of us to be. It's simply this drinking long and deep from the living water, from the fountainhead, Jesus Christ. We cannot have a DIY faith. God never intended for us to do it ourselves. He has placed in us the Holy Spirit, which leads us in all truth. Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. It isn't by anything man will make that will bring us into a deep relationship with God, but it is the work of the Spirit of God as he works in us as we submit to his will in our lives. You want to be closer to God? Then submit yourself to the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Draw near to him and he will draw close to you, closer even. And you will find no greater joy, no, no deeper understanding, and no more enveloping love for God than that. Jesus is all you need. Amen? Let's pray.